We're going to be reading from God's word and found in Genesis chapter 41. We're going to finish up the chapter today. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. He made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Paneah. And he gave him in marriage Asnath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asnath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. In the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Today's scripture, particularly Pharaoh, reminds me something about how a lot of people are not like Pharaoh. When Pharaoh is given the word of God by Joseph, he surrenders everything. He listens to Joseph and he enacts a plan. I think a lot of people, quite a lot of people I know, are more like Alice from Alice in Wonderland. I don't mean they have Mad Hatter friends and tea parties with dormice. 
But it's more like, it's that song that's in the cartoon version of Alice in Wonderland that goes something like this. I give myself very good advice, but I very seldom follow it. That explains the whole trouble that I'm in. Be patient is very good advice, but the waiting makes me curious. And I love the change should something strange begin. Well, I went along my merry way and I never stopped to reason I should have known there'd be a price to pay. Someday, someday, I give myself very good advice, but I seldom rarely follow it. I've heard that the greatest distance there is on the earth is really not from New York to Australia, but it's really from the head to the heart or from the heart to the head, whichever way you're, you're putting it. I always thought, you know, there's an infinitely greater distance than that. It's really from the heart or from the head to the hand. Because I know a lot of people, they have a lot of very good intentions. They give themselves very good advice, but they seldom rarely follow it. In fact, when people come into my office and they're dealing with some really big struggle, I find out within five minutes of talking to them, they already know the answer. They know the answer better than I do. The question was, the hard part was, is actually going through with it. You hear the word of God. So this is um, Joseph. He, he, he uh, does what a pastor does where he explains to the person the word of God, gives them the information. He then gives them the context. What does this mean for your context? And then what should you do about it? So the word of God was given to Pharaoh, actually, in his dream. He gets two dreams, and he can see in there what God is saying to him, but he doesn't understand it. So Joseph, he interprets the dream. He puts it in his context, and he tells him what this means is that there will be seven years of plenty. So Pharaoh has this dream in which seven fat cows, seven fat years of grain are, are, are seen. And then next up is seven zombie cows, seven zombie grain. Well, they're not called zombies in the scripture text, but they're gaunt, starving cows that eat other cows or grain that eat other grain. And it bothers him so much. And Joseph puts in his context telling him, this is what this means. It means seven years of plenty, seven years of want. If you don't do anything in the years of plenty, the years of want will destroy everything. All of your plans, all of your dreams including his very family, are going to come to absolutely nothing if you don't do something in this time. And then he tells him, this is what you should do. Going through a series like this, where we are covering three quarters of a book of the Bible like Genesis, there's a lot of pressure on me every week to try to recap, and I really can't recap every event up to this moment, but I can give it a try here. So last time on Patriarchs, Joseph, Joseph, was his father's favorite son being groomed to take over the tribe after his father was gone. He's given a coat of many colors, a long coat, one, not some, one that one is not supposed to work in, but one is somebody who gives the orders to work. His brothers hear about these two dreams he have in which they're bowing down to him. They hate him because of his dreams. They want to kill him because of his dreams. One brother just wants them to leave him alone, so they decide to split the difference by selling him into slavery. Little does everybody in this, in this event know that this is God's will to save not just them, but the entire known world from starvation. Joseph thrives wherever he goes, because wherever he goes, whatever his hand finds to do, he does it with all of his heart as though he was working for God himself. We know this because he would rather be falsely accused by his master's wife rather than commit a sin that would compromise his heart. 
His brothers had stripped that coat of many colors, that long coat from him, tore it to pieces, but Joseph's heavenly father had given him one that could only be given away. While in prison for a crime he did not commit, he meets two of Pharaoh's officials, a butler and a baker. I still don't know what happened to the candlestick maker. I'll get on that sometime. They have dreams. Each have their own dream. They are very similar dreams, and God gives to Joseph an interpretation for these dreams. One is bad. The man pays for his crimes. The other one's good. The cupbearer, the butler. He's given, a, he's given a good dream. He's given a good interpretation. And Joseph just asks for him for the hope that he's given him just to remember him when he goes to the king of Egypt. The cupbearer forgets about Joseph until his king, Pharaoh, starts having dreams, dreams like he had that bothered him, but much, much worse. And he sees what torment his king is in, and he finally remembers, oh yeah, I remember there was this lad in prison. You're under 30, you're a lad. Because he, Joseph was 28 when he met him in prison. Two whole years later, Joseph is 30 when he meets with Pharaoh. So he's a lad, and he says, I remember him. He knew a dream. As soon as you tell him, he could interpret it. And then Joseph is brought out of prison. He gives Pharaoh the information he needs. He puts it in Pharaoh's context. And then he tells Pharaoh, what should you do? How, how should you live? It's the work of a pastor. It's to bring the information of the scripture, not just to read it, but to put it into your context to tell you what it means. And that's why we on, here at Faith Church, we believe preaching through the word of God. We believe chapter by chapter, verse by verse, it is truly God's word. And every week I explain to you in your context, and that's the majority of the, of the preaching, and then the application. Now how shall we live? In the scriptures, this was the most important, yet the least amount of time was put onto this because the application often is very easy to understand. Now, Joseph tells Pharaoh, this is what you have to do. In the seven plentiful years, you need to set somebody up. You need to send an overseer of overseers, and he's to collect 20% tax on all the grain in all of your kingdom and to set it aside, to get it protected. This doesn't seem like a big thing, but when you consider in Egypt, according to Egyptologists, that the, the, the high end of the tax bracket was about 10%, which, by the way, makes me furious as an American today. That was a dictatorship, and they're only, they only taxed 10%. You know, if you do the math, you're taxed, I mean, depending on your tax bracket, you're taxed at least 40 to 60% when you consider sales tax, income tax, property tax, which would have made our founding fathers lose, a, lose their minds, um, death tax, um, capital gains tax, and I don't know, do we have tax? Can we still, like, just breathe without having been taxed? So 20%, which is 10% more than what they were used to. Not only was he to, this person to collect it, but this person had to protect it. This person had to, be, had to manage it well. And it had to be somebody you trust. Man, who could you trust with such a big assignment? Because once the, once the famine happens, this guy's going to have access to all the grain, and Pharaoh's not. So if this guy wants to take over the kingdom, it's not a lot Pharaoh can say about it. So he gives him the application and what to do. And how does God, so God is about to send seven years of a very severe plague that will eat up the seven years of plenty as though they never happened. In this plague, if nothing is done, then not just Egypt, but the surrounding areas will die of starvation. When God saves the Hebrews from a future Pharaoh who has enslaved them, he uses 10 plagues and he splits the Red Sea. 
When he saves Noah, he tells him how to build an ark, a boat that can survive the, the flooding of the whole earth. He saves Lot by sending his angels to take him out of the city before he judges it. When he saves Paul the apostle, he sends an earthquake or he makes him impervious to a snake bite. So what great miracle will God use at the end of the book of the beginnings to save the world from starvation? What is this great thing? It's proper, faithful financial management. Isn't it God? Isn't it amazing how God works through the mundane things in our life? If you have wisdom, you need less miracles. This is the miracle God is sending. A lot of times we miss the miracles God sends because they're not fantastic enough. There's this guy in the book of Kings in which the prophet tells him to dip in, in, into this river three times and then he'll be cured of his leprosy and he's furious because he thought he had to do something incredible and he realized no, it was all of grace. So Pharaoh, he hears the word of God. It's explained to him in his context. And now he knows what to do. So the big question for us as we're reading this is, will he be like Alice? Where he, gives him, where he hears very good advice, but he's not going to follow it. He could very easily tell Joseph, okay, you've told me what's going to happen. Now I'm going to fix this. And this is what a lot of us do. We're facing a major problem whether it's caused by yourself or caused by others or by living in a fallen world. And we are asking ourselves, well, how do I fix this? But you know what Pharaoh needs to do? He needs to surrender. He needs to surrender his will. He needs to surrender his kingdom. He needs to surrender his means to God's care and control. And that's very easy to say. It's very hard to do. It's like, you know, lifting, lifting, you know, benching a thousand pounds is not complicated. You just pull it off your chest and push it up. It's just extremely difficult. It's not complicated. It's easy, but it's difficult to do. And it's very difficult because for a lot of us, we do the same thing. We, do, we don't do what Pharaoh does. We decide, no, I'm not going to surrender all. I'm going to keep back some for myself. I'm going to decide for myself, how am I going to get myself out of this as opposed to saying, hey, you know the word of your God? Here's everything. And that's what Pharaoh does. He has, take, he has taken this clay of Joseph and he is. God has taken this clay of Joseph and has made him something strong, a vessel that holds his Holy Spirit. Pharaoh's life, we have two people, two principal people in this event in history. We have, Pharaoh of, we have Joseph, of course, and we have Pharaoh. Both of them, all of their life have been leading up to this moment. You know, and that's, that's the kind of attitude we should have as believers, that wherever God takes us, that's where he wants us and he has work for us to do there. No matter how mundane, no matter how it may feel like we're just spinning our wheels, to understand wherever we go that God, that God ordains our steps for, his, for our good and for his glory. Pharaoh's whole life has led up to this moment because if Pharaoh botches this, if he messes this up, no more kingdom. All the dreams of all the Pharaohs before him, dead. If he botches this up too, if Joseph botches this up, then his family dies. But of course, we know this is part of the pattern of God. If you... Flip forward in your Bible, quite a few books, you'll find this book called Esther. And in the book of Esther, there's a saying, for such a time as this. You could know nothing about the Bible, and you probably have heard this saying before, for such a time as this. That you have this moment in your life in which, which, you, which you have to shine. For, for Joseph, for Pharaoh, this is for there's such a time as this. This was Pharaoh's for such a time as this. In the book of Esther, this quote right here, what I love about it is said by her cousin Mordecai, and he says, who knows? 
That's a great attitude to have. Because a lot of us were kind of lead poisoning in which we're like, okay, unless God writes down on stone in front of me that he wants me to do this, then I'm not going to do it. Oftentimes, once again, we know what the right thing to do. It's in the scripture often. We already know that, but we, but we lack the courage to do it. So we, we want God to, you know, we say, I don't feel led to do that. You don't have to feel led to love your neighbor. You don't have to feel led to do good to somebody. You don't have to be led to know that wherever you're at, that's where God has placed you. And who knows, but you've been put to this position for such a time as this. There's this guy named, um, there's this guy named Jonathan, and he was uh, best friends of King, with King David. And there's this part where nobody has weapons, and John, and, and John he goes with his, uh, uh, Jonathan, he comes with his uh, armor bearer, and he says, God can save by many or by few. Let's see what God will do. And he goes and, and he goes and engages the enemy, and he gains this great victory. And that's the kind of attitude we should have as believers, that wherever God puts us, that's where he has us for a reason. And if we can find good to do in that thing, if we know the next right step, we should do it. We see this in history with with people maybe we'd say that's great. Like, for instance, Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill, he kind of failed in a lot of things he tried in his life. But he was the leader England needed in World War II. More accomplishment before him made the situation go from bad to a whole lot worse. But Winston Churchill, he was the man for the moment. And as soon as World War II was wrapping up, he actually got voted out. Many people don't know that about Winston Churchill. He has a long string of failures, but he had one win, and obviously it's a very big win. He said when he took, when he took position, he said, when he took the position as prime minister, he said, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. I thought I knew a good deal about it all. I was sure I would not fail. How many moments in our life do we have that and we just... We weren't paying attention. We didn't realize, no, I, I'm the person in this situation. You're not a world leader. Nobody here is the prime minister of England unless you've been keeping something from me. But since we're talking about World War II, there's another guy during World War II had that same kind of attitude that if God brought him somewhere, it was for a reason and that he wasn't going to let that opportunity pass him by. And that was Corporal Desmond Doss. He's a United States Army corporal who served as a combat medic with the infantry company in World War II. He called himself a conscientious cooperator. Um, what that means is that he would not touch a gun. He would not take life. He was there to save life. This was his conviction that he had in his very heart. He had this conviction that it was wrong for him to lift a weapon, so he wouldn't. Das distinguished himself during the Battle of Aquina... Aqu oh, man, I can't say the word for right now. Over in Japan, by, uh, by saving an estimated 75 men acting on his own and becoming the only conscientious objector, objector to receive the Medal of Honor for this and other actions. His story has been uh, adapted into a movie called um, Hacksaw Ridge, I would suggest, though, if you're interested, YouTube actually has the documentary from his own lips, which is much, much more moving, in my opinion, because it's real. And you have a lot of the Hollywood stuff that's not in there. 
And what I thought was so powerful about this man is he had such an unswerving faith that on Hacksaw Ridge, as bullets are flying around him, as he was experiencing the horrors of war without respite like the rest of the soldiers, but stayed there long after the retreat had been sounded to take men, wounded men, and lower them down on a rope. His prayer was this, and I quote him, I was praying the whole time. I kept praying, Lord, please help me to get one more. And when I got this, I said, Lord, please help me to get one more. You're not a world leader, not a prime minister of England. You're not a war hero during World War II because all of you are too young. But what about somebody like Eric Lindell or Little? His story is inspiration for the movie Chariots of Fire. His was much more mundane than the other two. He wasn't a war hero, but what he was was an Olympian, and he had a calling of his life, he had a calling of his life um, to go over to China as a missionary. Like I said before, he was an Olympian, and he really believed that it was improper, that uh, the Olympics was not such a big event that you could not, that you, that you would not, that you would violate the Lord's Day, the Sabbath on a Sunday. And his events that he was running in were on a Sunday, so he decides to compete in events, in, in events that were not his events. And he ends up winning, or else he probably wouldn't have made it into a movie. Um, but one of, the, one of the push and pulls in his life is that he'd been called into mission field, and many people in his family were saying, why are you messing around with the Olympics? God has called you to something great. His response, at least in the movie, I thought was so telling because it's the response as believers we have that whatever we do, we do it with all of our heart as unto the Lord. That it's not about some great mission that God has for us because the great mission is to love him and to enjoy his love forever. Is that he said um, in the movie, it's his sister um, confronting him. And he says, I know that God has made me for a purpose, but he's also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. When you do what you do, do you feel his pleasure? I don't care what it is. When you work, when you do whatever hobby you have, when you're hanging out with friends, when you do it, do you do it with your heart as though it was worship to God? Because whatever our hand finds to do, we should do with all of our heart as unto the Lord. You know what happens during this? This, this thing that happens that God has prepared these good works from before the foundation of the world, we start realizing what they are. And sometimes they're little things, sometimes they're big things, but God sometimes has, has orchestrated our life up to a moment that at this moment, this is why we were born, to walk in these good works because he loves us so much. So I label my sermon today, Get to Work. Up until this point, we've had dreams, we've had Joseph being stalled in one way or another, but now we've come to the fruition of it. He's about to become prime minister over all of Egypt. It's time to get to work. It's time for action. So one, I want to talk about Pharaoh's actions in verses 37 through 45. Second, Joseph's actions in verses 46 through 49. Third, a family's actions in verses 50 through 52. Then finally in 53 through 57, God's actions. We start with Pharaoh's actions. In verse 37, it says, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. I find this to be a miracle in and of itself. Because I was thinking about this and I was wondering, when is a time in human, in American history that like our government has ever had a 100% approval rating? I don't think there's been a time. In fact, I was looking at World War I and World War II because I was looking at DOS and 
um, and Winston Churchill. And in both wars, the declaration of war, there was at least one state that opposed it. World War II, after Japan had attacked us, not 100%, but here we have 100% approval rating for, for, for Joseph's plan that, that he has here. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Furthermore, I think this is amazing at this point in time because when you realize the absurdity of what just happened is that this guy who believes that he is God on earth, that is Pharaoh, he believed his mother was the moon, his father was the sun, he is listening to this slave who had to be brought out of a pit talk about how his God would do something and there is nothing that Pharaoh, none of his gods, none of his slaves, none of his servants could do anything about it and if he would not do something, if he would not follow what this slave is telling him, then all of his dreams will come to nothing. Pharaoh's dreams will come to nothing. And he's like, that sounds awesome. Let's do that. Second, we see all of his servants see this as a good proposal as well. See, these servants who just got shown up by, by Joseph. When Pharaoh has his dreams, these people, their whole job was to interpret supposed omens that were sent to Pharaoh. If they have this, this is their one job, and it's like you had one job and you couldn't do it. I love the Turner classic movie version of this that is Ben Kingsley, because Pharaoh gets to this point and he's talking about, it's like, who can we put in charge in this? We need somebody who's dependable, somebody who's honest, somebody who's wise. And he looks at all of his astrologers and magicians. and He's like, and that excludes all of you. And all these guys are like, this is awesome. Yeah, Joseph, that, 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 that slave who just showed us all up, showing that we have no real power of our false gods. This is a great idea. Everyone can tell this is from God, a God they didn't know, but a God they believed. And in verse 38, Pharaoh makes his decision. I wish we could get a feeling of reading this for the first time, because we should have this feeling of like, what will Pharaoh decide? What have other great men decided when they were confronted? Some of them react violently. Some of them ignore. Some of them know what it is, acknowledge it, but just don't do anything. But in verse 38, And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Wow, that's a pagan king. This is the first time in Scripture. First time in Scripture somebody is described about having the Spirit of God within them. It's very interesting, obviously, a pagan person, you might have a footnote in your Bible that says that you can translate this as gods. The word that they're translating here, I took a look at it, it's Elohim. So Elohim is a generic word for God in Hebrew. It's one that can be also singular or plural, and that's why they translate it like this. And I, I was wondering this week, um, is, this, is this Pharaoh trying to give lip service to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Um, is this some kind of dealing he had with his father's had with Abraham? Because we know Abraham went to Egypt. And I, I don't really know. In fact, there is a Pharaoh in one of the dynasties who lived before this time. I, I re this really burdened me because I thought that they were the same time. And I thought I came across something really cool. Um, who, who tried to force Egypt into a monotheistic um, religion. And after he died, they scrubbed all of his stuff and like, had to like, etch out like the engravings, the hydroglyphs to change certain things. And I was like, okay, I think maybe this is the Pharaoh during Joseph. In fact, there was some fiction writer who had put it in there and I looked at the dates and it just doesn't fit. And I was like, oh, all that work for nothing. Anyway, 
So I didn't even put it in here. I, don't, I forget which pharaoh that was. Anyway, that's just to say, I don't know if it was him giving lip service or at least honoring the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he can see something about Joseph. He can see that he is filled with the God of his fathers. He has magicians, he has sorcerers, he has astrologers, and so many slaves and servants, but he doesn't have a Joseph. Do people, do pagans see the Holy Spirit of God in you? If they don't, why don't they? Maybe we're too self-obsessed for people to see anything other than what they see in everyone else. Maybe we're so friendly with the world that there's no difference to be seen, and then we've clouded We've clouded our spirits so much that they can't see the Holy Spirit of God like, like Pharaoh saw in Joseph. In verse 39, I think the, biggest, the person surprised about this most is Joseph. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and as wise as you. Joseph, in Joseph's family, not line, not from his line, but one of his brothers, there's a king over the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this king did something in secret that he thought that nobody really would know about or he would ever have to fight, face the consequences of. And then this man comes into his courts and he starts telling him this story. And in this story, there's this greedy man who takes from his neighbor what he didn't need to take. And then, and then this, this king tells the man, that man deserves to die. And the man tells him back, you're that man. I'd much rather be Joseph than King David, the person I was just talking about. I would rather that people could see the Holy Spirit of God into me at, some, at such a level that whenever anything comes up, they would be like, yeah, who is like this guy with such integrity? The Holy Spirit of God must be in him. I want him for this. With Pharaoh, this is signaling more than just simply him choosing an advisor or choosing a prime minister. He is going to invest everything he has into Joseph. And he says, you're the man. The king was, the king was surprised, but I doubt, um, it was a, um, but I, I doubt that Joseph wasn't surprised. The king of Egypt had told him basically, basically that you're, the, you're in charge of all of this. I don't believe Joy, jo, Joseph was pointing to himself when he was telling Pharaoh about the plan that he should be, that he should be doing. But Joseph had been prepared for this entire time, his entire life for this moment. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And um, I didn't prepare any of our teenagers for this, but you guys have been learning James. I imagine one of you must know verses 2 and 3. I don't suppose any of you have enough courage to come up here and quote it, do you? I won't, I won't force you. I didn't prepare you or anything, but um, go ahead and put up James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that, te that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. When we look at this, so the direct meaning of it, of course, is persecution. But he says of all kinds, not of certain kinds, of all kinds. Joseph had been being prepared by the Lord in the pit, in the cistern, as in jail, as a slave for this moment. Joseph, what he was doing with Pharaoh is what he'd been doing all of his life. He was just being faithful, telling the king exactly what God was saying. Joseph had the knowledge, what God was saying. He had the wisdom, what Pharaoh should do. But Pharaoh had the choice. 
Exactly like you and me today, we have a choice. Do we follow the word of God? Do we follow the messenger of God? Or do we ignore it and try to do our own thing? Do we surrender? Or do we, do, or we try to fix it ourselves? You know what God has said. You know what you should do. Will you surrender to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Or you resist him? Pharaoh chooses to surrender all. You know, I think if he was in the 80s, he'd been singing so loud, I surrender all. Does anyone remember that song? I surrender all. Very favorite thing that preachers in the 90s would say. If we were honest about that, most of us would sing, I surrender some. And I keep the really important things back for myself. Pharaoh, on the other hand, he surrenders really everything. In fact, he goes from this kind of dictator uh, mindset to really kind of England today. England has a king and queen today. It is a king today. And the, the king is the symbol of the government, but he doesn't actually have any authority. I thought this is interesting. I found this out today. When there's a new prime minister, when he's giving his oath of office or whatever you want to call it in England, he has to kneel down and take the hand of the monarch and get permission to form a government. Now, legally, he doesn't have to do anything. He's, he got voted in. The king doesn't have any authority. Pharaoh goes from being dictator to that kind of form of government. He is surrendering everything. Jo we look back at Joseph. He has nothing for 13 years, and then boom, all at once. It's like bamboo. Bamboo's growing time is very long, and all of its growth, all of the seeming growth happens almost all at once. And the question becomes, how long does it take to grow bamboo? The whole period of time. Because if you were to interrupt it, if you were to uproot it at any point in time, you would not have the growth. God had been preparing Joseph for such a time as this. When you look at Pharaoh right here, God had preparing Pharaoh as well for such a time as this. God prepares us when he asks us for that thing, will you surrender all or some? Look at Pharaoh's surrendering what does Pharaoh contribute to Joseph, to God's plan through Joseph? He contributes everything. He becomes just a symbol while all authority and power is with Joseph. This extreme, extreme contrast makes us notice how things in, things in Joseph's life has changed. So in Joseph's life, what Pharaoh does for him is such a huge contrast that we see. We see him putting him, Joseph, over his house. This is the third time this has happened with Joseph with Potiphar, the prison, and now over all of Egypt. Joseph was faithful at Potiphar's house. He was faithful in the prison. Now he will be faithful as over all of Egypt. All of Egypt is a lot more than a prison. It's a whole lot more than somebody's house. He's given command. Nobody will lift hand or foot without his say-so. Two seconds ago, he was a prisoner. Now he is in the command of everyone in Egypt. Pharaoh does something else. Not only is it just his word, he gives him his signet ring and he puts it on Joseph's finger and he gives him his gold chain and fine clothes. How many of you know this? But even if you know it, let me remind you, the signet ring was the symbol, the authority of Pharaoh. So people didn't hear Pharaoh. They didn't hear the edict that Joseph is now the prime minister, the governor over all of Egypt. They'll see the signet ring. Somebody tried to forge that signet ring. I don't even want to think about what might happen to them. So if you have the genuine signet ring, it's as though Pharaoh is standing in front of you telling you what to do. Any official document, 
that signet ring would be stamped on that document. And people would know this carries the authority of Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't stop there. He puts on him royal, royal clothing, these fine linens and the gold chain. Two seconds ago, he was in rags. And now he is clothed in fine linen with a gold chain. He has been adorned. He has been, he has been clothed. You know, you think about Joseph's life 13 years before that, and he had this coat of many colors, this long tunic that symbolized his authority. It was taken from him. It was ripped from him. Like I said before, though, the Lord himself had given him a coat of many colors. And now we see what is in the inside coming to the outside, this fine linen and this gold chain. Pharaoh insists that he's, that he's in the second chariot to Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh cannot undo the fact that he is Pharaoh, but he will let everybody know it is Joseph you need to listen to. It is Joseph to bow down to and to listen to what he says. And then he finally gives him a new name, Zathpanathpanea. Becca, good job saying that today. I remember teaching this to a children's church, and then I would do a review with the kids, and I asked what, I was like, if you get this wrong, that's fine. It's kind of a hard kind of trivia thing. But what was Joseph's Egyptian name? And one of the kids is Zach guy. He told me it's Zach or something like that. Zathpanathpanea. Um, Egyptologists and Bible scholars, we don't exactly know what this name means. It's kind of a mixture between a couple languages. We know panea means God lives. And according to Strong's uh, concordance, Zathpanath means God speaks. So it seems like if there's any kind of agreement on this, it would be that God lives and that he speaks. Man, that, that alone right there, that's a sermon in and of itself. In a world, in churches today have a very hard time believing that God also lives and he speaks. Many people will see, oh, the scripture is very nice. It's a nice little addition to my life. But it actually being the word of God, infallible, all of it? I mean, can't we just say some of those stories are mythological? Some of the stuff is just people's opinions. But to be like, no, God lives and he speaks. He is not dead, nor does he sleep. The good prevail, the wicked will fall. With peace on earth, goodwill toward men. He has a new name. And when we read the story of Joseph, when we read these events from history, we are tempted, and I don't think there's anything bad with this, about personalizing the story. And we'll do that game that a lot of us did when we were kids. If you had a brother or sister, you'd say, I'm that guy. You're that guy. My uh, wife would do this with her sister, Amy. Hopefully Amy's watching today. And Becca would be every main character. And then her sister could be like the, the side characters, not even like the bad characters. They could be like the person standing in the corner. I think uh, when you guys were watching Cinderella, was Amy all the wicked, all the ugly stepsisters? Did she even get to be the, uh, the stepmom? Probably not even the stepmom. So we look at this and we're like, I'm Joseph here. Well, there are a lot of similarities, a lot of parallels with Joseph right here and the child of God. Joseph has a lot of similarities with the child of God. We can start with the authority. Jesus, back in Matthew chapter 28, and you can put that on the screen, the Great Commission, tells us that all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto him, therefore go. He's given us this authority. In fact, when we pray in Jesus' name, we are praying with this authority that God has given us. And it's not magic words. In fact, nobody would have said in Jesus' time would have called him Jesus. They probably would have called him Iesus. 
Or they would have called him Yeshua, which would have been the Hebrew form of, of his name. But they wouldn't have called him Jesus. And when we talk about praying in Jesus' name, it's not a magic spell. I am praying in the authority of Christ that he has legitimately given me because of relationship I have with him. So when Pharaoh, when Joseph speaks in Pharaoh's name, he is saying, I have this relationship with Pharaoh. He has given me authority. And when we tell the world, repent and be baptized, every one of you, it's not my suggestion. It's not deep thoughts with Pastor Jason. I am saying according to the authority that God has given me. When we pray in Jesus' name, we pray with this authority. He has given us this authority to do the task that he has given us to do. It's a lot like Joseph because our father has asked us to bring in this harvest of souls. Apparel. When we come to, G when we come to Christ, we take off our old rags of sin and we put on his righteousness. He clothes us with a finer linen than Joseph could have imagined. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, and says, To put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. The adornment that Joseph has doesn't compare to the adornment he adores us with. The gold chain doesn't compare with the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your, your adoring be with the hidden, the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. He gives us the fruit of the spirit. God adores his children with the most precious things and makes Joseph's gold chain look very gaudy and cheap. He also gives us affluence. Pharaoh had given Joseph affluence. He was a big mover and shaker in Egypt now. now God does not necessarily give us physical wealth or societal affluence, but spiritual wealth, spiritual affluence. He makes us a kingdom of priests in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness and into his glorious light. So there are parallels between us and Joseph. Where God has lifted us up, he's given us authority, he's given us this adornment, but I think the more apt comparison would be us and Pharaoh. The servant of God, Jesus Christ, has come to us. He has told us the word, he has told us that the person who saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In a very real way, that is Pharaoh's actions right there, realizing that if he gives up everything to the plan of God right here, he'll save his life. But if he tries to hold on to it, he'll lose it. If he tries to do half and half, he'll lose his life. He'll lose his kingdom. But if he gives it all up, he will gain it. Jesus is the more perfect Joseph. Now, what will we surrender? Will we surrender all or just parts? The work of the Holy Spirit in your life is to make you more like Christ. And he will find everything that is not of Christ and he will make issue of it until the Father gets everything. So that's Pharaoh. That's Pharaoh's actions. To give up everything to this plan, to invest everything into this plan that God had spoken through Joseph. Now, what is Joseph's? 
Verse 46 switches the story from the actions of Pharaoh back to the actions of Joseph. We see here in verse 46, Joseph was 30 years old. I know some people, they're like, they turn 25 and they're like, oh, I haven't done anything yet. Don't worry, folks. Joseph's 30 years old. His resume so far, slave, prisoner, brother that the other brothers don't like. He's 30 years old. His story really started when he was 17 and God had given him dreams, dreams that his brothers hated him for. He spent 13 years in one pit or another. I don't know about him. I don't know what his inward monologue is. But I know for me, if I was in his spot, if I was in his sandals, I'd be wondering, what's happening to these dreams? And not only was I mistaken, but my brothers must have been mistaken too. They hated me for no reason because these dreams aren't coming true. I think for me personally, I'd be very bitter. I pray that God would protect me from this as he protected Joseph. Let me bring it back to Joseph. I think, you know, when I, when I would listen, I, after I'm done with my sermon, I listen to other pastors preach on the same thing. And I always find it interesting when they come to Joseph because we have to invent failings of Joseph because we don't like Joseph. Joseph doesn't compromise. In fact, the whole dealing with his brothers, really, was that out of pride or was he just talking to them about a dream and they took offense to it? He wasn't the one who gave him a co- himself a coat of many colors. His father did that. There are a lot of things we don't like about Joseph because Joseph acts in ways that maybe we fail. But that is where the grace of God comes in. And that's why I say we're a lot more like Pharaoh who have been given the message from God. When we look at Joseph right here, he has a lot of plans in this pit, but you know what his main plan is? Is to honor his God, to honor his God with his life. I would be wondering the whole time, this is what I'm going to do when I get out. This is what I'm going to eat when I get out. Like maybe they don't have pita bread in Egypt. I don't know if they do or don't. Um, but I'm going, to be, I'm going to have some of that in hummus or whatever he's w- waiting for. It's going to be great to get back with my family. I don't know how I'm going to deal with my brother. But Joseph's plans were just this. I'm going to honor God with my life, whatever that looks like. In verse, 30, in verse 47, we see in accordance with the word of God spoken through Joseph given to Pharaoh, prosperity grips the land like never before. Seven years of prosperity that has not been seen. This confirms the word of God spoken by Joseph. And in Joseph's administration, he is very smart. So I, I read this and I was thinking as I was, reading, as I was reading this portion right here, verses 48 through 49, what Joseph does. And I thought if I was transported back, like if I had a time machine, if I had the TARDIS, and I got back there and I took over for Joseph, I would mess this up so bad because I don't know anything about administering an entire nation, let alone trying to save enough for bad times, because this is what I probably would do. Maybe this is what you would do, is I would gather that grain and I would transport it to Memphis. That's like the capital of Egypt or one of their major cities. And then I would keep it there. And then people would have to come over here. Here's the problem with that. One, it'd be impossible not to have waste as we transport the grain. It'd be impossible to safeguard because once again, you have all these different places that are all traveling in caravans, very easy to take or for people to take liberties with. Um, And then also you'd have the possibility of rot and things like that. Instead, what he does is as they gather it, they have local storehouses to bring their grain to. So Joseph is smart. 
on this. And that is not just, it's not just simply all spiritual, but he's using wisdom too that God had given him. And he's making sure it's stored there. And this is another thing it does, is that those regions, they then, however big your storehouse is going to be, is up to you. So if you want to hold back, not do the 20% like your king, like your prime minister has told you to, you're going to suffer for it because your local storehouse, it's not going to be much. But since it's your local storehouse, see if it's one central location, then those in southern Egypt can decide we're not going to work as hard because we're all going to get an equal distribution of this grain. No, you're going to get the distribution according to the place that you're at unless you want to travel a pretty perilous journey. So in, in addition to Joseph being smart, and I guess this goes with being smart, is he's not a socialist, and that works out pretty good for everybody. Um, in, Joseph's, right, in Joseph's work right here, there's three marks of his work ethic that we need to learn from, that we need to emulate in our life, because it's about integrity as well. Um, Steve, Pastor Steve Lawson came up with this, and I'm taking them from him and saying they're my own, is that one, Joseph works immediately. He doesn't just take time and to enjoy the moment, but he gets to work right away. No grass is growing under his feet. He doesn't procrastinate. He didn't, he didn't in Potiphar's house, he didn't in the prison, and he doesn't here either. He is faithful in the small things. He is faithful here too. Procrastination, dear ones, is a sin. It is not doing whatever God has given you to do and doing it with all of your heart is unto the Lord. Is that the offering you give to the Lord? I'll do it when I get to it. I remember my, my, one of my pastors growing up, Don Brown. Don, if you're watching, love you. I mean, so much, so much you've spoken into my life. I remember going into his office and he had this like round piece of cardboard and, and it was called a Tuit, T-U-T-T-I, T, Tuit. And um, I'm like, what is this? He said, oh, people kept telling me that they would do things if they got around to it. So I made a round to it. Anytime somebody tells me they'll do something if they get around to it, I give them the round to it. <laughs> Joseph always had his round to it on him. And there's another saying in my pastor's office too. It said, well done is always better than well said. There are a lot of people. They have very good advice. They have very good intentions. They haven't done anything. He's active. He works diligently. I'd say he does this because he knows the stakes, but he's done this his whole life no matter what the stakes. Here's the third thing. He's thorough. He does not start a project and then abandon it. You know, as a pastor, if you come to me with a great idea, a great ministry, you might notice I'm somewhat gun-shy. Because as a pastor, I've had a lot of people come to me with great ideas that they abandoned. They themselves abandoned halfway through then guess who gets to do it? Nicole, because she's mine. <laughs> so I'm always having a gunshot because I know a lot of people, they have these great intentions, they have these great dreams, but if you are not going to see it through, don't even start. In fact, that's what Jesus said, talking about counting the cost. His illustration was a person who builds a tower and then doesn't realize they have enough money for all of the tower and everybody mocks them because of it. I've been a part of a lot of projects where that was my exact thought. It's like, where's the illustration Jesus was using? Because we're not finishing this. He finishes this. this. I ask myself, when somebody has this idea for a ministry or something to do, I ask myself, does this person have a Joseph attitude? Will they finish what they start? Verses 55 through 52, 
Joseph's new family. One thing I skipped about what Pharaoh does for Joseph is that he gave him a wife. He acted as a father to Joseph. What I mean by that is it would be typically the father who would find a wife for the son. Now, we don't live in those days, so fathers, you don't need to be thinking, like Josh right now is thinking about Andrew, about who would be his wife, but that's okay. We live in a different time. Pharaoh acts as father to Joseph since Joseph's father was taken away from him, and he, has, he gets a wife for Joseph. She's, a, she's one who would make him flow seamlessly into Egyptian culture. She is the daughter of one of their priests. Her position and family would solidify Joseph as a member of Egypt. Some Talmudic scholars believe that she was secretly a Jew. I, I believe that's wishful thinking. She became a Jew when she was married to Joseph. She would be part of the family of God. She would not remain a pagan. He means, um, and he, she gives him sons. This means more to Joseph than just simply having a wife. It means a reinstating a family, the one thing that had been taken away from him. It was a sign of God's faithfulness. He was taken away from his people, his family. In fact, you can imagine, as, as, even though this is being written in Hebrew, he was speaking Egyptian during this time. He now starts a new family with his new wife. And Joseph doesn't know this, but his sons will each have their own tribe in the people of Israel too. His first son, Manasseh. If you look in your footnotes, Manasseh sounds like the word in Hebrew that means to forget, or he causes me to forget. I think that's a very interesting thing. We talk about taking the Bible literally and what that means. It doesn't mean as I see it literally, it means as literally as they meant it. So in here we have a play on words with Manasseh, which, which means he causes me to forget. This first child, his name means, um, it means something here, means to forget. In Leah, his, uh, Leah, jo Jacob's um, first wife, her names of her sons are very much like that, where their names sound like a word that means something according to what she believes that God is doing in her life. Um, Manasseh name means he causes me to forget. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, he describes hell as a place where no one forgets anything. They remember every slight, every cruel exchange of words, every wrong ever done to them, and everybody is utterly unforgiving and unforgetting. But heaven is a place where old things are put away and all things become new. Joseph realizes in this new land, even though he has struggled mightily, God has still been faithful. God is still watching over him. And his second son, Ephraim, his name sounds like the Hebrew word for making fruitful. This is a hard lesson for us, that God, that in the middle of our pit, while we are in the pit, God is still doing amazing work in us, making us fruitful in the land of our affliction. That is waiting, that is waiting, that is what God is producing in us, is fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. Even in the middle of our greatest trials, God is blessing us in the land of our affliction. Move from there in verses 53 through 57. We see the times of plenty are coming to an end and the times of want, according to the word of God, are coming to fruition. So for this last point, I want to talk about God's actions. In time of plenty, it's easy to hear and accept that God is in control. When the times of plenty have come to an end and the time of famine become, be, begins, it's a whole lot harder to believe that God is still in control that God is still watching over us, that God is still keeping us safe. 
in producing us a crown of glory which fars outweigh all of our troubles. What you have gathered in the time of plenty will be revealed in the time of want. This becomes painfully true when the time of want comes and you find out the person has never stocked up anything in the time of plenty. What does that look like? I'm, I'm talking in metaphors here, but what does that look like in your life? Is in the t- good times, if you believed this is my joy, it would be revealed when those times are taken away. Heartbreakingly, I've seen this in so many people who've quote-unquote left the faith is that in their times of plenty, they believed, I'm having good times, things are going well for me because God loves me. So when time, bad times come, they believe this must mean God hates me. They didn't store up anything in the good times of plenty. They believed that the things that were happening to them was because of good behavior and they have a transactional view with God. And then when bad times happen, when life happens, when the very words of Christ who says that in this world, we will have trouble happens. They've never stored anything. They've not held back anything in those times of good. Because in the times of good, we should have said to our heart and to our soul, this is none of me. It's all of him. And knowing him is so much sweeter than whatever this good time is. Summer was a very difficult time. For a lot of you, for, for me and my wife personally, and then came around December, and December, me and my wife went to Hawaii. You guys are probably so sick and tired of hearing about this. But anyway, we're in Hawaii, and um, we're having a great time. It was awesome, I won't lie. And I remember turning to Becca, as great as this is, it's not my joy. And it doesn't compare to the sweetness of knowing Christ. It doesn't compare with the sweetness of sitting in a, ho- in a hospital room after having a stroke and reading from the Psalms, that because he loves me and he knows my name, I will protect him. It doesn't compare. So in those times of plenty, we find out in the times of want what we've actually stored. What we've stored. We see this physically in the land and in the administration of Joseph. We see that in the heart, in Joseph's heart, when his kids and the chapters to come, his interactions with his brothers, what he has saved up for himself in the times, the times of plenty. We see, this in the, we see this in Mary, the mother of Jesus, that when she was told these things by the angels, she stored these up in her heart. You know when she had to rely on those? When Christ was on the cross. Amen. Bad times don't last. The resurrection happens after the crucifixion. But, the res- but during the crucifixion, what we've stored up in our heart is what we live on. The thing that grounded us in times of plenty is what will sustain us in times of want. The things that grounded us in times of plenty is what sustains us in the times of want. God is in control and I trust him. There is famine in all the land, but in Egypt there is bread. Why? I mean, why all of this? This is what God's action, this is God's actions. And, it's his pri- and he is the prime character and the prime mover in this story and in all stories. Sometimes we know why. Sometimes there's a word of God that says, because you've sinned, I am bringing this. And sometimes we just don't know, like in this instance. But the center of all things is a throne. And on that throne is the bread of life. God brought Joseph to Egypt for such a time as this. Pharaoh was brought up as king of Egypt for such a time as this. And moreover, all the earth 
Now we see, in the mind, we see the mind of God. Everyone in the known world is coming to Egypt. You know who's also coming to Egypt? Come back next week, and I'll tell you. You will see that God's plans are never, are never stymied, but that those who follow, those who surrender, live in the abundant life that God has promised. Worship team, would you come up at this time? Thank you so much. So glad that so many of you came this morning. So I, I was going to make a joke about like worship team come up, which is half the congregation, but it's not. So this is what I think is amazing about preaching through God's word as opposed to topics is that God's Holy Spirit is doing something in your heart right now that I can't anticipate. Sometimes you come up to me and you tell me things and I'm like, I wish I would put that in my sermon. When I preach through God's word, the Holy Spirit of God uses his word and he starts producing something in you. But I, for me, the big takeaway from going through this, preaching through this, is this. Just like Pharaoh, God comes to us and he asks us, will you surrender all? The Holy Spirit starts working in us and he finds something that we haven't surrendered and he says, will you surrender this? Sometimes it's a, it's a sin we've held on to. Sometime, sometimes... It's maybe a God we have in our life and he wants it gone. Sometimes it's just simply making something that's good into something ultimate, which I guess is idolatry as well. The believer, we have to constantly be asking God, asking the Holy Spirit, search me and find me, see if there's anything unclean. And then we bring it to the Lord as a living sacrifice. As we're in that spot of Pharaoh, what will we do? Will we surrender all or only partial? There's other things that the Holy Spirit could be speaking into your life right now. And I would encourage you in that. For instance, you see Joseph, whatever his hand finds to do, he does it with all of, the, with all of his heart is unto the Lord. Hey, that's you today and you're getting very tired of what the things that your hands are finding to do. The job is boring, school's boring, whatever it is, is just, it's killing your spirit. And God, God wants that from you. He wants you to do it for him and not for humans, not for, not for a boss. Maybe there's something in here once again that the Holy Spirit is just speaking to you through the preaching of his word that I, I'm, not even, I'm, not even, I'm not even seeing. But I trust that the Holy Spirit is working in you. And during our final song, would you respond to him? And if God is telling you to do something, if you are seeing something in God's word today that he is urging you to do, don't wait. Get to work.